This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 2nd, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. It's hard to put into words the human toll following the so-called liberation in 1949 China. It unleashed millions of deaths that even today are only lightly acknowledged by China's government. Frank DeCotter's new book, The Tragedy of Liberation, details the run-up to the Great Famine that took so many lives. We spoke following a forum for the book held last week. We all know how Mao viewed uh, this period. It was a liberation. Um, How do you characterize it? it? It's often portrayed by the regime itself, but also by supporters abroad as a golden age, as a sort of honeymoon period between the people and the party, but on the basis of very detailed evidence that comes from the party archives themselves. I think it would be much more accurate to describe it as a period of broken promises, systematic violence, and calculated terror. In your research uh, using a lot of these uh, newly provided documents from the, the Chinese Communist Party, what was the most surprising thing that uh, you discovered about the, the run-up to 1949? Um, the extent to which this was a Soviet backed conquest really took me by surprise when I researched the book. But to, to be honest, most of the original documentation, the party archives, really is about the post-1949 period. And there, what really surprised me is that you have mass rebellions, uprisings, right in the beginning, 1949-1950. That surprised me. We all know, I think, that in 1956, there are mass demonstrations, workers on strike, intellectuals who speak out against the Communist Party with the so-called Hundred Flowers. But already in 1949, you have literally ceaseless rebellions in the countryside. In Guangxi, one man out of three in some villages in Guangxi take to the mountains to join the guerrilla fighters and fight the communists. Uh, in, in East China alone, within the three first months of 1950, you have 40 popular uprisings. To the extent that uh, Mao and Chiang Kai-shek and uh, Stalin were working together, what was what can you say about that relationship that, that we didn't know before? I think that Stalin, of course, as we know, was supporting more or less both Mao and Chiang Kai-shek. It's the usual good old Stalin policy of uh, rule and divide, uh, pl- place your bets on both sides. Um, he was, um, I think, very much behind Manchuria. We tend to think about uh, the Soviet invasion of Manchuria as a mere blip in history, but it was as important as the Red Army advancing towards the 38th parallel in Korea, resulting, of course, in what we know, namely the North being communist unlike the South. Had the Soviet army not invaded Manchuria, there would not have been a communist China or a People's Republic. You document a lot of the communications between Mao and uh, Stalin with regard to trade. Now, it's, it's, I think, easy to forget that these countries need resources and that uh, in these countries, those decisions are made at the absolute highest levels of government. And to what was Stalin trying to get out of Mao in, in a lot of these trade negotiations? As much as he possibly could, as much as he possibly could, as Stalin always does, of course. We know how much he got out of East Germany. And one of the most interesting things that is, of course, that in 1956, this comes to light in Eastern Germany, that 
the trade terms were extraordinarily unfavorable towards Eastern Germany, but very much in favor of the Soviet Union. When people in China find out about this in 1956, they realize that they have been given pretty much the same raw deal. That is a very simple fact. In 1949, when the bamboo curtain comes down and Mao and the communists decide to stop all international trade and trade only with the Soviet Union, that very simple fact immediately impoverishes the country. It's an act of massive impoverishment. There seemed to be, in, in your writing here, there seemed to be uh, this recognition by Mao that the capitalists, however despised, uh, were critical to uh, maintaining an economy, and yet uh, he moved to crush them anyway. Everybody was critical. The farmers were. They, after all, uh, produced the grain that had to be procured to feed the army. And they were crushed within the first three, four, five years, the land taken back already by 1955. And then free enterprise was important because, after all, the state needs money. And they, too, crushed in 1952 the sort of witch hunt against private entrepreneurs that causes some 644 people to commit suicide in Shanghai within a mere two months. And they, too, have to hand over their assets to the state by 1956, by which time everything has been nationalized from your small shopkeeper to your larger industrialist, all of them have to hand over their assets to the state, crushed as well. Intellectuals, of course, every country needs people to think, to teach, to invent. They too, again and again, right away from 1949, subjected to thought reform. They're asked to transform themselves into new people. And in 56, crushed when they are asked, first of all, to speak out during the Hundred Flowers. And then when they do so critically, Mao turns around and labels them rightists. You mentioned that at one point, uh, only 10,000 or less than 10,000 of capitalists uh, in Shanghai were viewed as honest. How does one get that designation in uh, Mao's China? How does Mao know that 5% of the people in the countryside are landlords? How does he know in 1950 that one should kill one per thousand in the population as a whole because they're counter-revolutionaries? How does he know that there are 5% of rightists among intellectuals in 1956? It's just government by quota. He doesn't know. He just picks a number that seems neither too soft or too harsh in his own view and, and imposes it. Everything, steel production, grain output, as well as death, is a quota mandated from above. It's government by quota. A lot of your information, as we mentioned earlier, came from uh, the Communist Party and uh, recently revealed information from the, the Communist Party. To the extent that this information is acknowledged, how much of that acknowledgement occurs in public and how much of it is just, is I, I hate to say this, but merely written about? Of course, the information is not out there in public. It's contained within the party archives. And you have to go into those archives and spend a lot of time to ferret that information out. So some of these documents have never been seen by, by anybody who's actually written or spoken about them. In some cases, even the archivists are not quite sure what is in some of those folders that they hand over to historians. Um, so to that extent, it really still is a history 
buried in the archives, which is only just about coming to light. But I think it's fair to say um, that while the regime itself has been critical of the Cultural Revolution, Deng Xiaoping, for instance, came to power in 1979 on the promise that he would end those 10 years of internal chaos, quote unquote. And while the regime might occasionally talk in very indirect terms about the famine that was caused between 1958 and 1962 with tens of millions of deaths, it was very reluctant to go back to the, the 1950s. This is, after all, the foundation myth of this regime, that it somehow liberated the people and that that liberation ushered into an, a golden age in which the people and the party somehow bettered the country. As we have learned more uh, recently about that famine, the numbers only get bigger, right, as, as one might expect. What do we know about the scale of it today that we didn't know five years ago, ten years ago? I think the key point about Mao's Great Famine, the, the book I wrote three years ago, is that so much of this death is not just accidental. There is, for instance, what I refer to as using food as a weapon, where local carders, seeing that there's not enough food to go around, start punishing people who don't work hard enough, start somehow not feeding, since food depends on the canteen and the canteens are controlled by the party, start not feeding those who are too sick, too weak, too old to actually contribute to the regime through their labor, start deliberately deliberately eliminating entire categories of people. And there is another aspect there, uh, namely that about one, two, possibly even three million people during this famine don't die of hunger. They're beaten to death. They're beaten to death because they're accused of being counter-revolutionaries, because they steal a handful of grain, because they occasionally speak out against the party. So they're, again, extraordinarily violent. That goes hand in hand with mass starvation. You talked about uh, sort of revolt that occurred early on. And uh, one thing I noted in your book was uh, the importance of dogs, uh, both to families in the city, but also as uh, tools uh, in the countryside. Why was the government so uh, intent on registering and eliminating dogs? Well, of course, the government from 1949 onwards, being communist, wishes to register anything and everything, <laughs> including, including, of course, your pet dog. Um, well, there is in the early years a reasonable attempt to eliminate sick dogs, rabies, very soon, roundabout by 1950-51, as a campaign of terror unfolds, dogs are no longer seen as just dangerous from a point of view of public health. Dogs are the ones who will alert their owners to the arrival of the police. And I think this is the key to understanding why dogs were eliminated during the 1950s, first in the cities, then in the countryside, because they stand in between your household and the police. They have a sense of propriety. Indeed, and they will alert you to their arrival. Frank DeCotter is author of the new book, The Tragedy of Liberation. You can watch a forum for the book at our website, cato.org.